The Cell Phone Junkie Podcast, episode 374 for August 4th, 2013. Motorola announces the Moto X, on-again, off-again rumors of a retina display of the next iPad Mini, and Starbucks goes all-in with Google. My name is Mickey Papillon. And I'm Joey Coppice. Brought to you each week by the Cell Phone Junkie podcast application, available now for Android, the iOS, and Windows Phone 8. $1.99 for all three of those versions. First off this week, Motorola on Thursday announcing the Moto X, the first device created by Motorola following the acquisition by Google last year. Motorola and Google focused several key features in the device, including the phone's size and shape, calculated to fit the average hand as comfortably as possible while still being thin and lightweight. In terms of specs, the Moto X has a 4.7-inch 1280x720p HD display, running on a 1.7 gigahertz dual-core Qualcomm Snapdragon S4 Pro processor, all with 2 gigs of RAM. It includes Motorola's X8 architecture, which has separate GPUs and contextual cores to handle extra processing tasks for various built-in sensors. The main camera is 10 megapixels, and the user-facing camera is 2, both of which can record 1080p HD video. The X has a 2200 milliamp-hour battery that is sealed in the device. Storage options include 16 gigs or 32 gigs, but has no expandable memory. The X supports dual-band Wi-Fi, has Bluetooth 4.0 low energy, GPS, and NFC, and will be sold by AT&T, Sprint, T-Mobile, and Verizon Wireless. The 16-gig model will be $200. The 32-gig model, $249, both on contract, available in late August or early September, depending on the carrier. Now, the real story here comes from the software side uh, and also in the hardware and how they're designing it. So first off in the hardware, the X includes what Motorola is called touchless control. Touchless control allows owners to speak a phrase that can wake the device and initiate a voice command. The voice command can then be used to make a phone call, ask for directions, read emails, and so on. Motorola has added the functionality via a low-power processor that enables the feature at all times without draining the battery. The X has a quick camera that can be woken up quickly with a gesture by flicking your wrist twice like turning a screwdriver, allowing for the phone to be able to take pictures within two seconds. Another key feature is the active display, which lets users see the clock and certain notifications on the clock screen. This is actually a pretty neat thing where basically you just touch the screen and you can see what's going on. Uh, So some pretty interesting things here on the software side. So making it a, a Motorola device designed uh, under the tutelage, I guess we'll say, of Google, but not really a Nexus device. It's not even a, you know, a Google-style device like the, you know, the Google versions of the S4 and the HTC One. It's its own thing, uh, and it's uh, very interesting how they've added some of these extra things in. But either way, uh, we'll be shipping, like we mentioned, with Android 4.2.2, um, and, and I think that's an interesting choice here. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute. Uh, lastly, though, on the hardware side, the X can be custom-ordered with various colors and accents using something that Motorola has announced called Moto Maker. This is an online tool that lets users create their own unique version of their Moto X smartphone. It can be purchased in either black or white by most carriers. AT&T will be able to use uh, the Moto Maker to choose from 14 different back panel covers, several different accent colors, i.e. colors on the side of the device, and other options to make the Moto X their own. Verizon also announced that they will get this Moto Maker option as well, but that won't be coming until later this year. The Moto Maker does not cost any extra money to use, and Motorola says the custom-designed phones will ship within four days of the order. The Moto X for the U.S. market is being assembled in a facility here 
here in Fort Worth, Texas. The components come from all over the world, including 14 different states. So uh, basically what they decided was in order to get this thing into people's hands and to be able to do that in a customized way, as they're assuming this is going to be pretty much a custom device for every single person. I think they said 508 different versions or something of the phone that you can make. Uh, so because of that, it's going to be made here in the U.S. So one of the first devices to, uh, to have that, uh, that tag on it. You know, I think that's a very unique uh, feature to kind of custom custom build your device. Just kind of like you can custom build a car. I would hope they'd have more than 14 different back colors. I mean, you'd think that they could really expand that to a quite a larger number, but I suppose maybe they don't want to go too crazy here on the first iteration. I, I You know, I hope this uh, really takes off of them kind of a different strategy because, you know, we do need some customization. I think that is kind of the next frontier for, for mobile devices. And I think a lot of people will... Uh, like this because you know you've seen the variety of cases that people buy for their phones i think that uh, you know people want to showcase what they have I think that's one of the other interesting arguments or, or conversations I've seen about this this week is people are saying, well, what does it matter what kind of cover uh, you have, cover you have or side accent cover colors you have? You're going to put a case on it anyway. And I think Motorola is banking on the fact that you're going to maybe not want to do that with something like this. And you're going to be looking to show off whatever it is that you customize here. Because, you know, let's just take the iPhone as an example here. Uh, you really have to choose between either a black or a white. I mean, the sizes don't really matter. The carrier doesn't really matter. And so everyone looks like they're using the same phone uh, or if you, you know, if you happen to be one of those people who, you know, does like the Anno style thing where you get the, the anodized aluminum case put on it, it's, it's a little bit, you know, more unique. And I think people have, have paid a lot of money to do that for these devices because they like to show off their style. And, and I think Motorola is onto something here. I'm, uh, I'm a little dubious as to whether or not this is actually going to take off for the mass market, though. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. I think one of the big things for people is them wanting to to figure out a way to still get their device at a reasonable price. And we mentioned earlier that it's going to be still $200, and that's on a contract. So it's not like this is going to be this ultra-cheap device. Though when you hear those specs, this is not the top-of-the-line spec device. It's not a 1080p screen. Uh, it's only using 2 gigs of RAM. I say only in a day and age where we're starting to talk about 3. It's got a 1.7 gigahertz dual-core. There's no quad-core processor here. So, so we're talking about specs that whether or not they even matter is a whole other story, but it's not the top-of-the-line hardware, yet it's commanding the top-of-the-line price point. So that's going to be an interesting thing to see how this goes. If it's the whole customization thing that draws people into it, then they may have a, a hit on their hand here but if you're just talking about sheer specs this is not the device to get but again i don't know that that really matters to most people so um regarding the carriers it said that motorola will get it to all four major u.s carriers plus u.s cellular as well at&t and sprint have announced that their uh, intent to offer the x uh will be uh, will be done uh within the next couple of weeks here verizon has recently announced a trio of motorola made droids that have some of the same features as the moto x they have not said anything about when it's going to be available but of course we do know it will be coming also T-Mobile indicated that uh, the Moto X is compatible with its network, but it will not be selling the device directly to consumers at retail stores, uh, and no word on pricing for that one. Also, a Google Play edition of the device will also be offered, though no word yet on when that will be or the pricing on that. Uh, if you're up in Canada, Rogers will have the exclusive on it. Uh, they'll be offering it in both black and white for $189 on a two-year contract. No availability currently planned for the UK. So we've been hearing about this phone for, gosh, how long? Maybe like, it feels like two years, but it's probably been at least, you know, nine months we've heard about this, you know, rumored Motorola X phone. And, you know, it kind of almost predates the Motorola purchase uh, or the Google Google purchase of Motorola. And, you know, this really is kind of like the release 
of the device with Google and Motorola, but I, I, I kind of think the development probably predates that. I think so, too. I mean, I think this is the device that Motorola always intended to be their iPhone killer, if you will. And I think, you know, and I saw this phone uh, this week and it was I, I just completely glossed over the specs because I'm, I'm actually um, pretty bullish on this. I, I think they've got a really good idea here where it's you can make this phone however you want. And if you think about in your life, um, take away the kind of the, the brainwashing that we've had here, whether it was you can only choose a black or a white phone and think about, like Joey mentions, the other things in your life. Like, how do you choose a car? You don't just go out and buy a black or a white car. Maybe you do and you're fine with the colors, but a lot of people like to choose other things that are that make them, you know, make it a little bit more uh, personalized or think about an accessory like a jewelry or something like that. What are the colors that you're choosing? And when you start to open your mind up to those types of decisions that you're going to be making, you can start to think about how exciting this could be to have a phone that absolutely reflects your personality. And this is something that you're going to be using, you know, 50, 100 or more times a day for up to two years potentially. So it may make a lot of sense to get something that looks a little bit more and feels a little bit more like something that is more you. Now, uh, if you're someone who totally uh, doesn't doesn't care about that and is just absolutely onto specs, uh, then you know this is not the device for you. But we have uh, just in the U.S. alone 300 million people, 300 million phones, and uh, we're quickly approaching I think over 200 million smartphones. So this is a, a a big play for Motorola here. I think that they could come out with something that could be that personalized for an, any customer out there. And so I think it's a good it's a good move on their part. I'm. I'm, uh, I'm very interested to see how this does here. I think we'll know by the end of the year if this is really going to be a trend that makes sense or not. I don't think this is something like uh, maybe like a 3D as a feature or anything like that because that just that didn't really appeal to anybody. But having something customized that looks like something that you would carry outside of a phone is, I think, really appealing to a lot of people. And I do think it's going to it's going to work for them. I'm, I'm just I'm questioning here the price point if that's going to be an issue. Maybe not. I'm not sure. Uh, I just know that if I'm looking for the top of the line model, I'm going to bypass this one because it's only offering me things like what I would expect to see in a 2012 device. Yeah, unless you're really into the Motorola name brand or if you really want these couple of those features that they uh, they tout for the, the, the kind of the, the sensor features like the always on voice command and and everything and, the, and you know, we'd heard rumors that there was going to be a whole huge suite of sensors in the in the x phone and we didn't really see that materialize so i'm not sure if that's going to throw some people off but it's uh the price point is a little just a little bit questionable on the uh you know when you're comparing it to the specs well and i think there's some of the some of the, the the sensor stuff did come to fruition i guess if you look at like the the whole uh, what you do to get the camera open it's a little weird i mean it's if you take your phone and you flick your wrist twice like you're turning a screwdriver that's that's what their idea is here and i I like it in concept, but I've seen a number of videos now where it hasn't really worked well for people. I'd rather have a button to just press for the camera. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's another way to do it too, right? I think they're, you know, they're just going over, you know, what we can do with other things that are built into the device. Maybe a little novel, uh, but uh, I don't know. Maybe there's something that you can do with that active display too. Yeah, maybe, but, uh, you know, a, a button would launch the camera within, you know, one second instead of having to waste a, a second rotating the device a few times. So it's it just a, you know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, it sounds better than it actually is an implementation. Yeah. And th- not real, uh, not real simple. I mean, you're going to have to, maybe they'll do a tutorial or something when you want turn the phone on. I don't know. Cause how many people are going to know to do the 
you know, screwdriver turning thing. Anyway, Moto X, it's announced. It will be here before too long and uh, looking very much uh, forward to this to see how this thing uh, comes out and how it does in the marketplace. Well, Qualcomm and Alcatel Lucent on Monday announced plans to collaborate on 3G and 4G small cells for use in residential and campus environments. The companies will use Qualcomm's mobile broadband technologies for Alcatel Lucent small cell technology to create base station equipment for use in malls, businesses, and other urban areas where dense coverage is needed. Both companies will take part in a joint research and development program with the express purpose of creating next generation small cells. The companies believe that by working together, they can offer wireless network operators a better solution to implement their larger macro network coverage. According uh, that one, this is a big interesting thing here because I think according to um, what we have out there right now, we really are looking at a uh, the infancy of the small cell deployment. If you if you consider what has come into play so far, it's always been these kind of kludgy systems that have really not been the best for what we actually need here. And so uh, the, a kind of a, a general overview of what a small cell is, is the way to bring in a, a distributed antenna system, so multiple antenna access points throughout an environment that then all ties back into uh, a, a central area that can then push all of the voice and data calls and traffic over a system that can basically handle the amount of data that is being needed here. So if you think about how a traditional cell network works where you have a single tower and that tower only has a certain amount of channels and a certain amount of spectrum that it can use, it's sending out that information out over the air. And if you get into an area where you've got a lot more people than that tower can, can, can handle, like a, a sports stadium or a mall or something like that, your data speeds slow down because there's just not the bandwidth there. Uh, and this is this is the wireless bandwidth, the spectrum. That's that's the issue here. So small cells, they ratchet the power way down and they offer better coverage throughout an area where it may not have, have had the best coverage, like an indoor place. And then it allows for that spectrum to be used more than one time because the power output is, is much less. So it is a, a great way to go. Uh, I'm really excited about this. And I think that uh, if you if you consider where we've come and where we're going to go, this is something that is going to make a lot of sense and uh, it's not going to be like a you can't think of this as just like a, a micro cell or something that you would buy to put in your home these are very industrial complex systems with networks that are designed by uh, engineers uh, to take advantage of and, and to take into account uh, a dynamic environment and so uh, very interesting stuff here so I'm excited to see Qualcomm working with Alcatel I think both are good companies and I think both make great hardware it's just putting those two uh, together here to come up with something so we'll see how this all works out. Now, according to the U.S. Court of Appeals in New Orleans, law enforcement does not have uh, does not need to obtain a search warrant in order to obtain cell phone location data from network operators. The decision overturns two earlier rulings set that said search warrants should be required, but instead the court has called the data a business record that belongs to a network operator, and the Fourth Amendment protections should not apply. The ruling conflicts with those made in other states in recent weeks. So, what does this mean? Well, this means means that uh, it, at some point here, we're going to see law enforcement starting to obtain information from your carrier about where you are uh, at a certain time to, to, to determine what is going to uh, what is happening in, in a court case or proceeding. So, um, you know, this the, consider it a, a breach of privacy or consider it just kind of the, the cost of doing business with the network uh you know, carrier here that's got that information, but uh, this could change the way that uh, certain things are done because, of course, you know, your, your phone can tell you where you are all the time. 
you know, and I watch, uh, you know, like 48 hours sometimes and watch some of those murder mystery shows. And more often than not, you know, the police can call up and get emergency location information based on recent crimes or, or even missing people and get that location data from the carriers immediately without a warrant. So I don't know if this is actually going to change a lot of practices on how things are done. I suppose this would be more for longer term investigations on certain people. But I think this is kind of... Uh, uh, you know, I think they're getting a lot of the information already without warrants. And that's probably very true. I, I guess I just think about this from a, you know, just trying to make sure that everybody is, uh, you know, is safe in what they're doing and, and knowing that this information is out there. So don't think that there's never a way for your information about where you are to be collected, because uh, certainly it can. Mobile payment system ISIS will finally launch nationwide later this year. I feel like I've read this story probably 12 times. But uh, anyway, the service uses NFC and allows smartphone owners to make tap-to-go payments at participating retailers. The service is backed by AT&T, T-Mobile, and Verizon and has been undergoing trials over the past few months in Austin and Salt Lake City. Now, if they can get this kind of system at uh, restaurants and in gas stations where we can avoid all these card skimmers, that's what will make this service very appealing for a lot of people because, you know, gas pump uh, card skimmers and, you know, uh, restaurant workers that have the little skimmers in their hand uh, when they take your credit card away for who knows how long. It's it's a frustrating thing right now for making payments. Yeah, I think uh, this is uh, this is the way of the future when it comes to making uh, to, to doing this. Uh, and I, and I, I think NFC is a good thing. I think it's a it's a very interesting way of doing this. But you've got at this point, I don't know how many millions of iPhones uh, that are out there in the world, none of which have NFC. You've got a lot of different Android devices, you know, pre whatever year that was that NFC really got uh, assimilated, which would have been, I guess, the Nexus S. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, all of those devices are out there that are not using NFC and people are going to potentially want to use it. So I think it's a good way to go. But I, I wonder what if there's going to be anything else that's going to come up. I think if we could figure out, like, you know, the square stuff is very interesting to me where you're just, you know, you've got a, a, a device there in your hand and you're able to just take it and, and scan the, and, and have the person physically there with you in your card. Um, you know, maybe something like that. I don't know. Either way, it's uh, ISIS could be the solution, maybe part of the solution, maybe a small segment that hardly ever gets used. Who knows? But either way, uh, they are finally launching later this year. Um, we'll have another similar story that says basically the same thing when that does happen. The Obama administration on Saturday vetoed a U.S. International Trade Commission ban that would have blocked sales of several Apple products. The veto was set to go into effect uh, August 5th after the ITC found Apple guilty of infringing on Samsung patents that pertain to how mobile data transmit data, devices transmit data via wireless networks. The patent is considered to be a standard essential and it must be licensed at fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory terms. Apple and Samsung were unable to agree on a licensing deal for the patent, and as a result, the ITC chose to ban the AT&T variants of the iPhone 4 and iPad 2. Other Apple iPhones and iPads were not impacted by the ban, and U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman decided that the ban may give patent holders undue leverage in future patent cases. The veto marks the first time a president has interfered with an ITC action since 1987. So this goes to back to the, you know, it's not over till it's over type of thing, where you know, we heard about this, uh, whatever it was, six months ago, I guess, when the ITC said we're going to ban these products from being sold here. It'll go into effect in, eight, in August. 
And uh, the president steps in right at the 11th hour and says, nope, that's not going to happen. This is uh, not a good way to go. So either way, very interesting stuff here that the president actually get involved in uh, stuff like this. AT&T on Thursday announcing new international roaming plans specifically for students and teachers who study abroad. The two new plans are meant to help uh, mitigate the costs of using an AT&T device while abroad. The first option costs $60 a month and includes 250 voice minutes, 250 outgoing messages, and 250 megabytes of data. The second option is $90 a month and includes 400 voice, 400 outgoing messages, and 400 megabytes of data. The new study abroad plans will be available starting August 9th. Verizon on Thursday announcing a change to its share everything plan structure that added a new low cost option with a smaller data bucket. Verizon now offers a 500 meg plan for $40 a month, undercutting the previously bottom end one gig plan for $50. The new plan tier for the smartphones on Verizon uh, says that the now lowest price you can pay when you pick up a smartphone is $80 a month on a two year contract. That, of course, offers the unlimited voice and text along with the aforementioned 500 megs of data. You know, I think this will be a popular plan with a few people. I know uh, certain people that would like to get a smartphone and just don't have any need for data other than just an email here and there or maybe some minor web browsing. And I think 500 megs would actually be more than plenty uh, for that uh, usage. And also, this would bring uh, Verizon down to $70 if you go with a, if a, with a feature phone. Uh, that's capable of data so you'd actually have the 30 plus the 40 for the the 500 megs uh, so you've got a there's a 70 dollar option as well that's true and i think uh, you know 80 dollars for a smartphone that gets you in with 500 megs is probably just fine for a lot of people and you know it's interesting i i, I was looking uh, at somebody's bill this week um that i know and and i was in their plan they had used like i don't remember what it was it was like a, a meg or a gig and a half or something like that for the month across three different devices and the plan was eight gigs and i thought what are you doing why do you need gigs well i don't know if i'm ever going to use that much and i thought well it's still a little high <laughs> you know that's that's a little much i mean maybe choose the four gig and so i explained the whole you don't really need that much if you go over you can retro it and stuff like that and so save them a, a bunch of money a month by doing that and the carriers are pretty good at uh, giving you those uh, usage alerts now so you can you have more than enough time to up the plan uh when you if you're going over it uh, in any given month and I'm at the two gig plan right now, and I've, I think I've mentioned multiple times, I just am not using that much data because of Wi-Fi. Uh, I'm actually trying to push it a little bit this month just to kind of see what, uh, if I don't actually try that much to conserve data where I'm at. Um, I'm two weeks in, I've used 800 uh, megs across three different devices, two iPhones and an iPad, so I'm still under that two gig uh, mark for where, where I think I'm going to be for the month. So when did the iPhone 5 get released? It was when October was of last year. So... Since I've had my iPhone 5, I have not reset the cellular data usage. I have only sent one gig and only have received six gigs on this device since November. It is, uh, you know, seven gigs total in that many months. It's not that much cellular usage. And I consider myself pretty heavy because, I mean, I even watch Netflix on this over LTE. So it's not, uh, I mean, I don't do it a lot, but it's uh, not too bad for data usage, really. Well, and I think that's a that kind of is a good point. And I, I don't use a lot either. I mean, I, I can't tell you what that information is on mine because I reset my counter every month. But, um, you know, for me, I, it's it's more more or less a, a device that, you know, sends and receives email. Um, you know, occasionally I will. Well, I'll check news feeds a lot, which do include a lot of pictures. But um, it's amazing. I look at the, the number of, you know, the, the applications that I use on a regular basis, and they're all pretty low bandwidth. And I guess that's the point is that unless you're really streaming a lot of music, which is what I've actually been doing, I've gone back to streaming 
streaming some more music and uh, you know whether whether it's that or video I mean those are the really the killers uh, you know pictures I suppose a little bit but even then how many pictures are you sending a day if you're like me at the at the very most you're probably sending maybe you know a dozen pictures a day to various people or various things and stuff like that and in, in there if you say well there are about three megs each if you're choosing the highest res which I often don't because it doesn't really matter um, you know you're talking you know in, in in that scenario about 36 megs of data a day just for pictures which again it doesn't it's not gonna it'll add up but it's not gonna be a crazy amount eight gigs is not realistic so but if you need the data you need the data and and uh, that's fine but Verizon has realized that maybe some people don't need quite that much and so you now have a 500 meg tier that you can choose if you need it Sprint on Tuesday announcing second quarter earnings reporting a net loss of $1.6 billion on revenue of $7.2 billion. Sprint said that 86% of its postpaid device sales were smartphones, including 1.4 million iPhones, but that the company lost 2 million net customers during the period. Sprint indicated that many of the customers were lost due to its shutdown of the IDEN network, which turned off on June 30th. Sprint also posted a record high postpaid ARPU of $64.20 with net postpaid subscriber additions for the 13th consecutive quarter so how could you lose two million iden customers at that time they had two million people still on iden in the last you know the very basically the last months of its life yeah i guess there's a lot of people that were just basically said we'll just ride it out till it's done and i think one of the the biggest things for this is if you were someone who was using it and had been using it for a while maybe you had a device that was multiple years old and it didn't make sense to upgrade to a new device especially or even though sprint was going to give you one for free you didn't want to sign that new contract uh, and just kind of wrote it out till the end. And so I, I absolutely think that was that was probably the case. And I bet it was a lot of business customers, too. I, I can see very, very few. I, when was the last time you, you actually talked to someone who chose Nextel as their network of choice? It just it, it's been years and years, seven years, yeah. Yeah, seven, eight years. Yeah. So of those two million that they lost, that they said, you know, were the, the majority of which were from the IDEN network, I would say conservatively 90% probably 95%. Now the the caveat to that is how many of them were Boost Mobile subscribers, right? Cuz Boost used the IDEN network for a while as well. So maybe that factors into it there as well. But on the actual Nextel side, how many people on Nextel were were non-business customers? My guess is very very few. Along with its earning results, Sprint announced the expansion of its LTE network in 41 new markets. The launch brings the 4G service to 151 total across the U.S. Additions include Oakland, Daytona Beach, Portland, Nashville, and Philadelphia. Sprint says it is on track to offer LTE in 200 or two 200 pops by the end of the year. T-Mobile is hoping to step up its LTE network in the most critical top markets by deploying more spectrum to the new network. According to a statement given to Light Reading, T-Mobile said that nationwide they plan to to deploy 10 plus 10 megahertz of LTE in 90% of the top 25 markets by the end of the year. Although the network is currently live in 116 markets, T-Mobile is primarily using the 2 by 5 megahertz deployment, which offers less bandwidth for customers on each tower. Testing of the new 2 by 10 network is currently ongoing in New York City, where engineers have been dropping the HSPA Plus network from 42 down to 21 megabits per second in order to reuse those resources for LTE. When the network eventually rolls out in the larger markets at full capacity, T-Mobile plans to run both the HSPA Plus 42 and LTE networks 
concurrently. So here's what we're kind of going back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. Uh, the more spectrum that you have uh, offers, you know, more capacity here in these types of areas. And you've got places like New York City, Chicago, San Francisco, where you've just got these huge concentrations of people that they've got to handle. And uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do so with towers. So my guess is along with these deployments, they're also going to be doing some other things to bring these towers or to bring these customers onto other types of systems other than your traditional tower in order to manage all of this. And uh, the 10 by 10 megahertz uh, deployments will definitely be helping out with that as well. Well, following the double E launch in uh, the UK of LTE earlier this year, O2 has announced that it will be launching its 4G network by the end of August. O2 says the network will go live on August 29th in London, Leeds, and Bradford, UK, with a total of 10 cities going live with the network by the year's end. Uh, Everything Everywhere operates its network in 95 markets currently. O2 hasn't provided information about the monthly prices or data allowances on LTE plans besides a basic 4G tariff of 26 pounds per month. And finally in news, Starbucks this week announced that they'll be making a change to its Wi-Fi carrier in 7,000 locations around the U.S. The decision to move its free customer Wi-Fi service to Google from AT&T was done based on two main things. First off, Google promising the coffee purveyor a data speed increase of 100 times in certain locations and innovative content for Starbucks Starbucks's landing page. There will be an 18-month transition period from AT&T over to Google, though some Starbucks stores are expected to start getting the service via the Google agreement this month. So they're saying up to 100 times. That means probably the gigabit service that they offer in a handful of markets across the country. In most cases, I think we're going to see, you know, more like probably 10 megabit per second speeds here. Uh, AT&T has been offering the service here over the past couple of years. They got the contract from T-Mobile, I think back in either 2009 or 2010. And uh, so interestingly, for those that are using AT&T devices, of course, you know that every time you walk into a Starbucks, your phone automatically flips over to it so that uh, will probably be changing here and a look for new SSIDs at your local Starbucks coming soon. In device news, one of the iPhone 5S's most rumored features may indeed be a reality according to information pulled from the latest beta of iOS 7. Developer Hamzad Sood spotted a folder within the latest beta titled Biometric Kit UI that may be used for the user interface for a biometric fingerprint sensor that will launch with Apple's next generation iPhone. 9to5Mac notes that the description of the UI points to a user being able to swipe the sensor on the iPhone's home button. So I don't. What do you think about this, Joey? I mean, obviously, this is a rumor that we've heard for a while. We're starting to see it now in the code. It may indeed be coming coming to life here very soon. Kind of seems like it. I would like to have that as long as it. You know, it's quick. As as long as it's faster than entering like the four digit uh, security pin, I would be all for that because uh, you know m- making things faster and easier would be great. And as long as that. Uh, security system will be appropriate for uh, the exchange server because I because I know right now you know I can set you know require a, a four digit pin or or a longer passcode as well but I wonder if the uh, security fingerprint will be available uh, to qualify for that uh, right now I mean there's obviously no way for them to do that I mean think about how uh, the, the perfect example is on Android right how can you use the face detection with Exchange I, I do not believe you can right uh, yeah I don't I'm not sure I mean I I really don't know. Yeah. And okay. so here's my point. I I think there's there's a there's a a time and a place for this. Uh, I think it's going to be, you know, more of the feature than what we see today with password, where it's numeric, where it can be cracked or broken, uh, you know, with a certain amount of time and a certain amount of equipment and a certain, uh, you know, skill set to do this. But 
Um, how is that going to play into the mass market? Uh, you know, the enterprise, the you know, the the, the working person. How are they going to be able to use something like this? And my guess is, out of the gate, it's probably not going to work. I, I'm not sure, but the 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 interesting thing is what this would mean for maybe like banking software, banking apps. What if you they need your fingerprint print for something? I wonder if it'll be available for other applications to use this, and that uh, could mean some different forms of security for enterprise users. Yeah, they create an API for this to use with uh, with the apps and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely, that's a good idea. I mean, think about think about two years ago. Would you even have thought about scanning in a check with your phone? I mean, that I, I do it all the time now. I love it. I literally did it right before we started recording the show. I just did one the other day. I mean, it's it's very convenient. It's very nice. Um, you know, the the days of going to the ATM to deposit checks. I mean, that's all I've really been really using banks for over the last couple of years is to to do uh, deposits at an ATM. And now I really don't need that because I mean, cash. You know, certainly you need a little bit of cash from time to time, but it's not something. Uh, with you know the the advent of credit cards or at least the, the widespread use of credit cards it's not something that you, I'm sure most people carry a lot of, of around anymore I know I don't and uh, so I think looking at a you know something like this could can make even more sense here because as as most people know when you use your phone uh, to do different different things like mobile banking um, if you're doing it over something like a Wi-Fi network uh, in a public place you certainly are susceptible to issues and security breaches and stuff like that so how much better would it be if all you do is scan your fingerprint it's not like that's going to be information that's going to be gleaned, uh, you know, in a in a digital way that's going to be of any use. And uh, so this is this is really exciting stuff, I think. So maybe they're onto something here. Maybe I don't give it enough credit. We'll know probably very soon here. I'm guessing a uh, September announcement, October release of uh, the next iPhone. Well, according to 9to5Mac, information buried also in the latest beta of iOS 7 is that Apple is planning a new iPad mini model with a faster A6 processor but no retina display. Multiple reports have said that a low-resolution second-generation iPad mini would launch in 2013 ahead of a new retina model in 2014, including one from the Wall Street Journal uh, on Wednesday. The journal says that Apple suppliers are preparing the next-generation iPad for mass production, but then they say it will feature a high-resolution screen from Samsung, so conflicting information just in a matter of a 24-hour period. So we could, if we take Apple's history here, generally they release products in a two-year cycle so they don't do major upgrades until the second year so uh if you take you know ipad ipad 2 then they went to the ipad retina in the third generation ipad uh we've seen similar updates kind of like that through the iphones and even um you know the ipods and things like that so if those you know historical accounts are correct uh, you may not see an ipad retina mini but those product codes that they were referring to uh, could also mean that they were for the, the 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 altered versions. You know how they keep selling the previous version, like they keep selling the iPad 2 still today, even. And but but in some cases they've upped the processor and upped the memory, but they're selling the older device or they've shut, uh, shorted the memory. Like they can sell the you know the iPhone 5 will be the upcoming one that'll only have eight gigs or instead of 16 or or something like that. So uh, that could be what those products are. But I'm I'm a little skeptical that we will see a Retina iPad Mini this year. And uh, I wonder what that actually means. Uh, we'll get to that in just a second. I do want to also point out that uh, the piece also claiming that Apple is considering multiple colors for the back of uh, the newest iPad, possibly contemplating a lower cost 
uh, iPhone and also lower cost iPad with a number of colors there. So we'll see what happens there. But so what does this mean for Apple? Will sales suffer if there's no retina display? Uh, you know, also, what, what's the psychology like behind these leaks? That was another thing I was thinking of here. As I, you know, we saw like in the course of a day, if you're someone who was really looking for a retina display uh, iPad mini, you went from a, a low and thinking, well, it's not going to come this year. I've got to wait yet another year to a high. And the Wall Street Journal saying, no, it is absolutely coming. So what is this going to mean? I mean, are you, uh, I mean, I know you're not, a, you're not really not considering this. You don't really care about the size of it. But what does it mean for someone who, who is, if, uh, if they have to wait yet another year, are they going to look elsewhere are they going to stick with apple does uh you know how does it play into this i'm not sure you know the, the i suppose apple's uh what they're thinking is the people that want an ipad mini just go and buy one they don't really the the, the, the customer that they want aren't terribly into the specifications so much so where they this would be a deal breaker and and you know quite frankly the smaller screen size of the the ipad mini the 10 24 by 768 isn't that bad but if you're used to the retina display, it looks awful. I mean, it really does. Uh, you know, I looked at it after using my iPad 2. I thought, oh, that's pretty good looking. But I got the uh, the retina iPad 4 and I then look at the mini screen. And I'm like, oh, I can't even look at that thing because it hurts my eyes. And then, of course, with the Nexus 7 that just got released here recently with that ultra high resolution display, I mean, it looks, you know, it just pales in comparison. So I don't really think it'll affect Apple that much because you know, they like to kind of hold back on features too. I mean, look at how long it took for the iPhone to get 3G. I mean, it, it, it's just kind of strange the way they, they, they put these features out kind of on a slow, methodical, uh, you know, they stretch out the, the product cycles here quite a bit. It's almost like they're a business and they're trying to push through products like they're, they're selling them and making money, right? Well, they, they're obviously trying to make as much money as they can on, on designs. And that's why we kind of see a two-year major overhaul on iPhones and other products uh, and sometimes longer, especially like MacBook Airs and things that, that you know, they go for many, many years on a same uh, design so they can uh, just reap in more profits from the product designs. Well, and I'm I'm looking forward to seeing what actually happens here, not because I want to buy one, but just because I want to know how how that, you know, how it's just one more way of trying to figure out what's going to happen with the in the future with Apple based on, you know, how they've done products in the past because I, I do agree that, you know, they kind of do things on an every two-year cycle, but also I do think that they're, you know, it we're now in, a, in an era where they need to make decisions faster and they need to be more nimble. So uh, look at the, the iPad 4 as an example. It's five months after the iPad 3 came out and they already had something new, but yet it wasn't new, right? And, uh, you know, so, but again, maybe just a way because they want to get, you know, the next version and the next style out earlier uh, rather than later. And maybe, and, and, you know, of course, with the this very first generation of an iPad mini, of course, Apple probably didn't really know what to expect for sales, and they probably held off on development uh, of the next generation until they were able to get a good feeling of how it was performing in the market, unlike the iPad 2, 3, 4, where, you know, the iPad 2 had been out for quite a bit of time, and that was selling, you know, wonderfully. The iPad 3 was probably doing pretty decent, so we've got, you know, they've got some sales history that they can now see, and, and you know, their development's probably ongoing, but... It's, uh, it, you know, it's tough to speculate on because Apple kind of does surprise us, too, in many cases. And I'm not someone who is, is so naive to say that a new device 
could never have this because of something that's happened in the past. But I also think that uh, we, we don't really consider things that Apple is announcing as, um, you know, to be like the latest and greatest a lot of times. And so just because there's no retina display doesn't mean that they're not going to do other things in the device to make it great that someone's, you know, going to, for, you know, to, you know, want, want them to buy it. Battery life is a consideration. Do it, what is more important is a longer battery life uh, with a lighter weight and a lower res screen. I mean, there's there's things that have to, to come into play here that you, you, you can't have it all without having some compromises here unless we see some sort of breakthrough battery technology, which I guess certainly could happen as well. It, it could, you know, the, the, the iPad uh, mini processor is the same as the iPad 2, and that, that definitely needs some upgrading here. So, I mean, obviously, we'll see a, a bump in the processor specific, uh, specifications here for this new device. It's not, uh, it, it's something that will really help the end user with, you know, speed and performance of the device now that's, you know, that, that processor uh, combination is fairly old now. And, you know, the application development has kind of moved beyond that, uh, especially with the, you know, the iPhone 5 and the iPad 4. And, you know, retina display, it's not totally necessary. And, of course, in order to put a retina display in the iPad mini, the resolution would have to be about the same as the, the, the iPad 4. And that's a lot of pixels to cram in a little teeny spot, even though the Nexus 7 has done that. Yeah, well, and I, I, I like the idea of that. I mean, I would love to see, you know, a higher res display. It would make me at least consider uh, per, perhaps that is the next device for me to buy. I mean, I, I'm in the market for a new tablet here over the next six months, probably. Uh, and this is just based on, you know, kind of a, a pass down thing where I've got other people that are going to need tablets in my family and I want to make sure that they have them. And, you know, I'm happy to, to pass them on. And uh, so we figure that out. But um, I, I do wonder if this is going to mean uh, if, if this is going to be the right device, I should say, for, for me or for other people, uh, if it doesn't have a retina display. I don't know. That's going to be a hard one to answer. I, you know, quite frankly, if it does not have a retina, I would not consider it at all. If I was in the market for a 7-inch tablet, I need to go get a 7-inch tablet and, you know, here's an iPad mini, uh, no retina, no way. Uh, I mean, I'd go for the Nexus 7 in a millisecond. Now, if the iPad mini had a retina display... I'd be tempted, uh, but even still, the price differential will still see uh, the the Nexus Seven is still going to be, uh, you, you know, that still would kind of be a, a tough sell not to go for just because of the, you know, the feature set of the new Android four point three and you know the, the size of the device and everything. It's uh, it's kind of compelling, but uh, the you know the premium that the Apple's commanding here, you know, it seems like that's uh, eroding just a little bit. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there is a. Uh, th- there's a lot to be to uh, for you know for Apple to be looking at here, so trying to figure out the next product that comes into this cycle, and um, you know certainly some of these leaks are are coming uh, you know very deliberately. Um, I also think that there's some of this that is is coming out that's uh, getting lost in the translation, uh, and so we're we're seeing that's why we see these conflicting reports, or at least people jumping to conclusions here, trying to figure out what uh, what they're going to be doing next. So very interesting stuff. Uh, yeah, we still have no idea what's going to happen here, and uh, we'll see here. Uh, I would guess we'll probably see an announcement for the new iPad or iPads around the same time. I think that was, was that in September? And then maybe the new iPhone was October because they had, there were new products uh, that were, I think the iPads were first. Joey, what did you get first? Did you get your iPad 4 first or your iPhone 5 first? I believe it was the iPad 4, but I really don't remember. And I think you're right. I think that's what it was. I think it was September, October. So anyway, uh, that's all, uh, you know, a lot of speculation right there. And uh, we'll see. We probably have less than 30 days before we know a lot more about this. Tablet maker Asus says it wants to expand its U.S. product offerings to include smartphones as soon as next year. Speaking to All Things D, the company says it is working to build relationships with U.S. network operators that didn't mention the types of devices they're looking to sell. Asus is currently the manufacturer of Google's Nexus 
Nexus 7 tablet and the PhonePad smartphone. Devices could be on shelves as early as 2014. And finally, in device news, Samsung is gearing up for yet another device announcement next month. This time, it's the Galaxy Note 3 and the first smart, uh, its first smartwatch. Unnamed sources tell Korean publication uh, AsiaE.co.kr that Samsung is planning to launch both new devices on September 4th. The Galaxy Note 3 is expected to feature a 5.7-inch full HD display with resolution of 1080 by 1920 pixels, 3 gigs of RAM, 13 megapixel camera, Android 4.2.2 Jelly Bean, and improved S Pen support. Well, one of the common complaints about many Android devices, including the older Nexus 7, was slow storage and I.O. performance, leading to poor user experience. After a hard reset, the Nexus 7 was fast and responsive, but after months of installing apps and using the tablet, things began to slow down. Google has fixed this storage I.O. aging problem on all Nexus devices with the Android 4.3 update, thanks to support for S, excuse me, FS Trim. The service known as Trim is an application that, quote, trims blocks not being used by by the file system. Trim is essential, essentially the paging channel through which the OS tells the uh, solid state drive or EMMC controller that a block is no longer in use and thus ready for garbage collection. This is critical for maintaining performance on the controllers that use the uh, th- this across the smartphone and tablet and prevent aging-related I.O. performance slowdown. Remembering that uh, deleting a file in software is actually communicated to the solid-state storage, uh, the, syst- the space is freed up from the user's perspective, but the EMMC controller is still, in this case, still treats the pages uh, with having valid data on that. So you say you have a copy of a three gig movie in your internal storage, watch it and then delete it. You still have three gigs free to reuse, but those blocks would not be rewritten until it's needed. So when unused blocks are trimmed at the OS level, a signal is sent to the EMMC controller telling it it is no longer allowed to, or no longer needs to track that data. The controller will then schedule those NAND pages and blocks for garbage collection and recycling, thus improving performance. Joey, this is a very interesting uh, piece here, and I, I appreciated uh, what is happening here. And this is good information for those that are using Android and have experienced this in the past. Um, I, I don't know. What do you think about this uh, as far as you know the, the forward progress of Android and what it's going to mean for the user experience? Well, from uh, reports that the Nexus 7 really, really suffers from this, uh, you know, terribly. And I think this will be a huge boom. I, I looked through some of the comments posted on Android Central, for example, in the story. And a lot of people said this uh, device is now flying after it had a day uh, of being a 4.3 being installed. So it could run overnight to run this process that the next day then it uh, ran better. My friend uh, has a Galaxy Nexus who installed 4.3 on yesterday and said today that the device is now, in fact, uh, flying. So it's... Uh, definitely a great upgrade uh, for Android users. I mean, you, you don't want to have, have your memory all slow and uh, cruddy because he's been really complaining about his Galaxy Nexus for the past uh, you know couple of months being very, very laggy and very, very slow. Nothing like it was when he first got it. Well, and uh, credit to Enantech for going through and, and actually putting out uh, some example output files on this as well of what was happening here on uh, devices here that had the new OS on it and really interesting to see how it was uh, trimming and finishing all of these processes in a way that uh, certainly seems much more efficient and uh, users 
that have been experiencing this performance, as you mentioned, are no longer uh, with Android 4.3. So great, uh, great news there. Uh, maybe one of those kind of subconscious things that you felt with Android maybe in the past when you use it. And uh, so maybe a, a good reason to, to go check it out again because they've got this uh, they've got this issue taken care of. So good news there with the new trimming support in 4.3. Google on Friday announcing its Android device manager that will be able to uh, be available beginning later this month. The online service can be used to locate a lost or missing phone by ringing it at maximum volume even when the device is set to silent mode. Further, the device manager will also show the location of the device on a map and let a user secure data by remotely wiping the smartphone if it cannot be retrieved. Android device manager is compatible with devices running Android 4.2 and up. Google did not specify when the service, though, would become available. And from what I read, it's actually uh, 2.2 on up, I thought, that they were going to have that uh, available for. So it's going to be for quite a few devices, I thought. Um, but this is the Find My iPhone uh, equivalent, finally, uh, officially sanctioned by Google. And it's, you know, not requiring a third party app to, to get this functionality. So this is, you know, one more step into the process that's, you know, uh, meeting some of the features that Apple has that uh, that uh, the Android had not uh, previously. And uh, I apologize if I said 4.2, just a, a Freudian slip there, just because that's all we really talk about these days. Yes, Android 4.2 and later is what it's compatible with. 2.2. You said it again. I said it again. You said it again. Android 2.2 and higher. 2.2. 2.2 and higher. Sorry. Samsung and HTC this week releasing version 4.3 of Android to its respective flagship devices. Scattered reports of users with both devices began seeing the OTA update to Android 4.3. Also, the kernel source code for both devices has been uploaded to the web, both available just a week after the new OS was released. That's huge. This is great news for the the people that bought these devices. There was some questions uh, whether or not uh, these these updates would be out in a timely manner for uh, users because the, the you know there's a bunch of reports saying that the source code is still has to be compiled by HTC and Samsung based on the drivers and all that for these devices. But uh, a week that's pretty darn good for the typical Android upgrade uh, time period here for this. So uh, I guess people who bought these devices through the Google Play are probably uh, pleasantly surprised and 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 happy about this one. Oh, well, absolutely validates uh, that purchase and uh, hopefully makes them happy. Uh, new OS. 4.3, not 2.3. Although that would be would have been a funny story to say if it was 2.3. <sighs> anyway, last in software, Google has again delayed plans to stop support for Google Sync on Windows Phone. The new cutoff date is now December 31st, extended five months from the prior cutoff of July 31st. Microsoft is adding a uh, adding CalDAV and CardDAV support for a Windows Phone, Google's preferred methods for syncing to Windows Phone 8. Well, just one question this week, so let's get to it. First up, Matthew, he says, I have a question on the iPhone 5. I love it, but I hate the podcast app. Uh, what app would you suggest? I don't mind paying for it if it's worth it. Thank you. Well, there are a number of apps that are out there, uh, and there are good replacements for the Apple podcast application. Uh, that's the one that I currently have on my device just because it's simple and I'm not listening um, to uh, more. I think I've got only six podcasts that I'm down to now, so it's really not not that big of a deal. And I listen to all of them on uh, the iPhone. So the other thing you have to consider is how much are you listening to podcasts on your other devices? Because some of these keep your Mac and your iPod touch and your iPad in sync. And so that's, that's something that's obviously very handy. So the, uh, a number of them are highly rated as well. So uh, let's, let's talk about the three that really stand out as the best. First off is Instacast. Uh, Instacast came out with their new, a new version just a, a few months ago. Uh, it switched from iCloud sync to their own service. It does require an account, which is 
free, but it's a very solid option. Uh, they include their own directory and rankings, and there's also a Mac version, so you can have Instacast on all of your Apple devices and have them synced perfectly between the iPhone, iPod, iPad, Mac. Uh, and uh, if you're looking to sync all of those, this is a great way to go. Five bucks for the iOS app, $20 for the OS X application. Next is Downcast. This is a uh, full of power and features for uh, power users of podcasts. The interface is straightforward and direct, uh, easy to find, subscribe to, and play whatever shows that you want. However, Downcast also provides a large amount of settings, so you can tweak everything from gesture shortcuts to skipping backwards and forwards, how long you want to keep the, the podcast locally stored on your device, and more. If you, if you subscribe to a lot of podcasts and you want to micromanage everything, that is uh, having to do with those. Downcast is a good option. It's only $2 on iOS. And finally, Pocket Casks, uh, Casts, excuse me, this is a service that uh, maintains their own directory. They do a lot of things to ensure the reliability of their catalog. Uh, in addition to instant refreshes, you can also share podcasts, episodes, and even positions within episodes. And uh, if you're looking for uh, something that has, you know, fixing a, an out-of-date listing from a, another service that you're using in another podcast, uh, Pocket Cast may be a good option. This one also only $1.99 on iOS. So those are the three main ones that I would recommend. Take a look at those, read the reviews, see if any of those kind of fit into uh, what it is that you're using, and uh, hopefully you will find what is best for your situation. Well, if you have any questions or comments for us, you can give us a call, 206-203-3734, or send us an email to questions at thecellphonejunkie.com, and we'll get your questions or comments on a future show. Joey, thank you very much, as always, for your time. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. For more information about the stories you've just heard, visit us at thecellphonejunkie.com. <laughs>